If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. June 1983, NASA sent the first American woman into space, Sally Ride. Until 1978, the astronauts selected for spaceflight had been exclusively men. Ride was one of six women selected, a cohort of pioneers who would endure unprecedented media attention alongside the agency's standard rigorous training. Lauren Grush, a space reporter and author of a new book on these six women, joined Eleanor Evans to explain how they forged a new chapter for America's space programme. So, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me on the History Extra podcast today. It's it's such a pleasure because I really, really loved your book. And we're talking today about six women who made history as the first set of American women astronauts. I'm sure some of the names will be familiar to our listeners. I hope they are. And each of them certainly made their mark. Can you please uh, introduce us to the six? Absolutely. And I kind of go in the order in which they flew. So I'm sure most people know the name Sally Ride. She was America's first woman in space. Coming after her was Judy Resnick, uh, followed by Kathy Sullivan, the first American woman to perform a spacewalk. Anna Fisher, the first mother in space. Then Ray Seddon and Shannon Lucid, who would go on to uh, fly more time in space than all of them. <laughs> So they're remarkable women. They've all got um, very different stories. They all came onto the programme at the same time. Can you talk us through that process a little bit? When was this happening? So this was happening in the 1970s. And around that time, you know, NASA was coming under fire for the fact that they really had not been very inclusive in their astronaut program up until that point. You know, back in the 60s when they were heading to the moon, they restricted the astronaut program to jet pilots. And since women were banned from flying jets for the military, there really was no availability for women to come into the program. But since that time, you know, the world changed. The civil rights movement occurred. The feminist movement was getting into full swing. And so NASA really couldn't hide from that mistake that it had made for much longer. And so in the 1970s, they made a concerted effort to really open up the astronaut corps to a wider array of individuals. And so they made it a priority to, to seek out women and people of color for the, the program. And they also relaxed some of the requirements. So the biggest thing that they did was create this mission specialist role, which, you know, they still wanted pilots with, with plenty of uh, piloting experience and jet piloting experience, but the mission specialist role was really more geared towards scientists and researchers and engineers. 
And that's really how the women were able to come onto this program. And the great thing about the women is they all are such a great example of there's no one true path to space, right? Two of them were medical doctors. We have Sally, who is an astrophysicist and a, and a tennis player. Judy was an electrical engineer. Shannon, a chemist. Kathy, an oceanographer and geologist. And so they're just a great example of how you don't have to, to pick one path. You can find your way in your own way to the, the space program. And because of those outreach efforts, they found out about the program and they were able to apply and be selected. Right. And there are some lovely moments in your book where they're in their day jobs or, you know, maybe at home and they realise that this opportunity is finally open, open to them. It's, it's really something. But is it fair to say that even though they came in different pathways, they seem to be united in, in their desire to fly, in their desire to, to visit space? What can you tell us about their motivations? Well, I will say something that inspired me when I was writing this book is that some of them did have a lifelong dream to go to space, but others didn't. And I think that was very relatable and helpful for me because I think sometimes I get intimidated by the idea that people have like a calling in life. You know, they know, especially with astronauts, I feel like a lot of us think that being an astronaut is this lifelong dream. And for some of them, it was, you know, for Shannon, Anna and Ray, they, they really had thought about it for a really long time. But for Kathy, Judy, and Sally, you know, it wasn't this calling that they had when they were children. It was really only when they were in the right place at the right time and they saw the call to become astronauts that they realized, oh, I think I have the qualifications for this and that I would be really good at it. And so I think that's just such a great example of why it's so important to be inclusive in our selection processes because you could find someone that didn't think that they would be a good fit for something, and then they they turn out to be the greatest fit. For instance, Sally became our first American woman in space, and she was fantastic, but she would never have thought that it was available to her if that selection process hadn't been more inclusive from the start. So these women apply, they are successful in their applications, uh, obviously pioneers. Can you talk us through what the training throws at them at this stage? How did this hit them? How did they respond? Right. So one of the more fun elements of training was that they had to fly in the backseat of NASA's fleet of T-38 jets. So they had to have about 15 hours a month just to stay current. And while some of them came into the program with piloting experience, uh, flying a small plane or a prop plane is much different than flying uh, in a jet. So that was a big learning curve for them. But many of the colleagues, of their former colleagues that I spoke to, really were singing their praises in terms of how well they adapted to the controls and how great pilots they became. And something that's a, a fun little anecdote is, you know, since they were backseaters, they technically weren't allowed to take off and land, but a few of their male astronaut friends may have looked the other way and let them take off and land, which they're admitting now years, many years later. <laughs> And then also one of the one of a great scene is when they, you know, even before they could fly in the T-38 jets, NASA wanted to make sure that they would survive and if the unthinkable happened and they had to eject from one of those planes. And so they had to go through water survival training and ground survival training. So if they were to, to land in a parachute on either of those terrains, that they would survive. And that was a real test. That was a very big first test of how they they were handling the press at the time, you know, when they were doing that water survival training, 
there were rafts of photographers following them around as they were trying to do this really intense, you know, procedure to make sure that they could survive. So they had kind of two jobs going at the same time. They had to do the job that NASA assigned them, but also be these public figure roles and do them at the same time. So I don't know how they handled it. They handled it with with a lot of grace, but um, definitely seemed like an overwhelming experience. And then, uh, you know, also a lot of the time was spent in the classroom. NASA really wanted them to be able to fix anything that went wrong in space. So they knew every component, every subsystem of the space shuttle. And also they were taking science classes. A lot of the payloads that they launched during this era were satellites that were Earth observation satellites. So they would take classes about geology, which I'm sure Kathy was, you know, <laughs> a pro at by that time, or astrophysics, you know, and, and Sally was a pro at that as well. So, you know, a lot of a lot of classroom time, flying time, and then also, you know, there were other fun elements like scuba training or, you know, to prepare for potential spacewalks or riding on the infamous Vomit Comet, which is the parabolic flight that it flies in parabolas to, to give people that experience experience of weightlessness. I've actually flown on the Vomit Comet before. It's, it can be really fun, but it also, when I was on the plane, did get its nickname as there are a few people that couldn't hold in, <laughs> couldn't hold in their, their breakfast from the, the day or that morning. <laughs> well, that's great. That gives us such an insight into the rigorous training that these women were going through as this cohort of the 35 that were signed in this uh, late 70s period. But you've already alluded to it, the press challenges as women. What other unique challenges did they face in this arena uh, as, as women at this time? So it was just a matter of they were coming into a space at NASA that was predominantly male. It was mostly male before they came in. So NASA had to make space for women when they came in. So that entailed, you know, logistical things like adding a women's bathroom at the locker room, you know, hair dryers, things like that. But at the same time, you know, not everybody was on board with the inclusion of women in the space program at the time. You know, some of the astronauts had never really worked with women in a professional capacity before this. So there are a few who have admitted that they viewed the women, and not just the women, but the other incoming mission specialists who are simply researchers and not not simply, but, you know, they didn't have jet pilot experience. They were kind of viewed with suspicion by some of their colleagues at the time. But it really, once they were in the program and showed how passionate they were for it and how committed they were to the job, they really changed a lot of minds. There were also uh, so there were some biases when it came to other women. For instance, some of the men that they were working it with, their wives were not necessarily happy with the fact that women were being working so closely with their husbands. So there's one instance of an astronaut who wouldn't fly with any of the women in his back seat because his wife was not comfortable with that. You know, there were definitely hiccups and, and problems with NASA along the way. But I would say the biggest tell was the press treatment of the time. And I have, I'm constantly saying I must ask for forgiveness for my press ancestors because <laughs> the questions that they asked the women just go to show that they were not so uh, enlightened when it came to the, the new inclusion of women in the Corps. For instance, even when they first announced the women's selection, someone asked if the fact that Shannon had three children was factored into her selection. And of course, 
many of the men at the time also had children, but it was really the fact that the women had children tripped up a lot of uh, people in the press. Additionally, you know, when they were first presented to the media before they reported for duty, I mean, the amount of attention that was placed upon them, they had press interviews, you know, all day long, whereas the men were just, they had, you know, retreated to the bar by that point. (laughs) And then, you know, when Sally was first picked, Obviously, that was when the press was really at its finest. You know, infamously, she was asked if she wept if something went wrong in the simulator. And I I actually got the the full press conference in video form from NASA through FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. And so I have that full press conference, and it really is a cringy delight to watch because Sally handles it so well, but the questions are are truly abhorrent. <laughs> What's great about reporting on six very different and accomplished women is they all had very different responses to things. So for Sally and Judy, they would not put up with anything, but Sally was, if, she, if you said a sexist comment to her, she would look at you and you you could tell it was you were in the doghouse. But whereas with Judy, if you said something to her, she would just give it to you right back. That was how everybody kind of described her. It's like she could definitely be just as crass. And then also not all of them were uniform in some of the things that they experienced, just like all most women are not uniform in, in everything. I think a great example of this is the infamous makeup kit. So Every now and then the NASA history office will share a picture of the makeup kit and it gets all these opinions. And I think most people just kind of go, ugh, I can't believe NASA would think to do that. But the reality is not every single woman was against having makeup in space. And I can completely understand that. You know, they were public figures and cameras were on them for most of the time they were in space. And so I don't know about you, but when I go do a public appearance, I definitely want some makeup. And so I completely understand maybe some did want it while others didn't. And so finding the different ways that they responded to the, you know, these various hiccups or learning curves was really gratifying. And I guess to follow on a little bit from the makeup kit that was provided, there was another personal care kit provided for Sally's first mission, which I think uh, is a little bit of light relief potentially. Yes. So along with the makeup kit that was devised, when Sally was doing her bench checks, which is when you check on all of the equipment that you're bringing with you into space, she kind of grabbed Kathy, who happened to be nearby at the time, just for some solidarity And when they were looking through the supplies, they noticed a a pink plastic container. And it's just such a great moment that they they describe in vivid detail where they pull on the plastic container and out comes one tampon. And then they keep pulling and out comes another and another strung together like sausages. And it just seems like a never-ending trail of tampons. And so when Sally asked about it, they asked her if a hundred tampons would be enough. And she's, you know, they're stifling laughter and they're just saying, you know, that would be, you could cut that in half and it would be okay. (laughs) So just, you know, just moments of like that are, you know, they're, they're infuriating, but also a great, great for a laugh at the same time. I'm worried about talking of them as as a group, as a as a you know cohesive unit, as you've warned against. But can we touch on more briefly how they felt about their roles as pioneers? Can you say much about that? I think they actively did not want to think about it or talk about it, though they were very conscious of the fact 
that there was a very big magnifying glass on them at the time. So I think for any woman or person who is the first to do something, they know that every action they take is being heavily scrutinized and will be, you know, if they make a mistake, they'll be, it'll be used against them uh, or, or not just against them, but, but for everyone like them moving forward. So one of the big things that really caught my attention and, and, and the women have talked about this too, is before Sally flew, she said her biggest goal or fear was that she just didn't want to mess up. And I think that a lot is loaded into that statement because it really, she knew that if there was some kind of mistake, it would just be like, see, look, American women or women in general cannot hack going to space. So that was definitely something they were all very conscious of. But at the same time, they also did not want to bring attention to the fact that they were the first women astronauts. They all very much wanted to be seen as just one of the guys. And in fact, there's a great moment where Sally and Anna sneak away to a Foley's department store after work one day to go buy khaki shorts and polo shirts, which is the standard engineer uniform, just so they felt like they could fit in with everybody. And I think that was, it's very indicative of the time, right? Uh, The first people to do things definitely want to be seen as equal and don't want any kind of special treatment. I think we've evolved a bit today where we also want equality and want to be seen as equal with our peers. But at the same time, I think we can also celebrate what makes us women and what makes us unique. Not that they didn't do that, but I think they were just very conscious of the fact that if they kind of highlighted, they didn't have that luxury to be to celebrate the fact that they were women. They really had to kind of fit in and blend in. Otherwise, they were going to be, that was going to be criticized or maybe made fun of by the press and, and everyone else. At the same time, though, it's something that you highlight is that some of these women were competitive. They were aware that someone had to be the first. And as you've alluded to, it was Sally Ride and she she went down in history as the first. What were they all sort of feeling? Can we get a sense of that competitiveness? I mean, I think everybody in that class was competitive. You know, they're they're a group of extremely accomplished people. And I think people who are accomplished get there by being quite competitive with one another. So I think there was all a desire among most of them to be the first, some maybe more than others. There are a few that say they weren't really thinking about being the first. They just wanted to fly to space. I think that was uh, an overwhelming desire for them or really any astronaut. I've heard it described to me as, you know, when you're an astronaut, your sole aim in life is to fly. And so the fact that people are going before you, whether or not they're historical figures or not, is just, you know, it's hard to watch other people. It's you know, so maybe take your seat if you want to think of it that way. But yeah, so there is definitely a competition. But the reason, one of the reasons that Sally was picked, at least the way it was described to me, is that they thought that, you know, she she was pretty introverted and, and kept to herself. And they thought that her experience on the tennis court would have been good for this. And also, the fact that it, she wouldn't let it get to her head was a was part of the the calculus as to why she she was ultimately picked. Well, perhaps we can get into um, what happens after Sally's flight in a minute. But I did want to pick up on the types of work that these women were doing as mission specialists. What what um, specifically were they were they em- employed to do as astronauts? What sort of roles were they filling? Um, and yeah, what did Sally end up doing on her first mission? 
So the biggest roles that they had were deploying satellites. So at the time, the the space shuttle was advertised as this routine truck that could go in and out of space super easily, and it could carry any type of payload you possibly wanted to send to space. And at the time, satellites were quite large, and so they would tuck them into the payload bay of the shuttle, and then it was the mission specialist role to really keep an eye on them and then deploy them through a series of, you know, maneuvers and switches and and all those things. And then another big role that many of the women had was uh, manipulating this thing called the robotic arm or the remote manipulator system. And that really kind of became their specialty at the time. And it's really one of the main reasons that Sally was chosen for her first flight was because that particular mission, SDS-7, really relied on use of the RMS, the remote manipulator system. They were doing a type of maneuver called rendezvous proximity operations. And it basically entailed they were going to grab a payload out of the payload bay with the robotic arm, place it in space near the space shuttle, and then they were going to maneuver the space shuttle around this payload and then use the arm to pluck it back out of space, maneuver it around, just show that they could stay in lockstep with this vehicle or this payload in space, which isn't so easy if you think about it. They're actually moving around Earth at roughly 17,500 miles per hour. So it's actually quite a delicate operation because you don't want to accidentally increase your speed and then run into the payload and damage the spacecraft. And so ultimately, Sally had proven herself to be quite adept at the robotic arm on Earth. And so that was a big part of the reason she was chosen for the first flight. So can you take us through this moment then where Sally gets launched into space? Yeah, so the that was just a, a great moment in the book to write about. Uh, obviously, prior to her launching, she knew that a lot of people would be watching her and she had been dealing with a, quite a bit of press uh, in terms of, you know, the press conferences, magazine articles, things like that. But ultimately, she was kind of shielded from the majority of that intense scrutiny through her training. You know, if somebody wanted an interview, NASA could just be like, hey, she's training for space. You know, she can't talk right now. And then when she did launch, uh, I I believe she would have been blissfully unaware of the large gathering of folks nearby because she was solely focused on just getting to the shuttle. But uh, roughly 500,000 people came to Florida that day to see, to witness this event in person. And, you know, there were a lot of celebrities in the crowd. You know, Jane Fonda was there, Gloria Steinem. And that moment, you know, many of the women were there to watch this happen. You know, Anna Fisher was the lead Cape Crusader for that flight, which is a term used for an astronaut support person. A lot of the astronauts helped support many of the shuttle flights, even if they weren't on them. Ray Seddon was there. Shannon was also there as a Cape Crusader. You know, it's just a great moment. And Sally also recalls it very vividly. You know, when the shuttle takes off, she had this overwhelming feeling that her fate was not her own anymore, which I think is probably the best description you can have of launching on a, you know, basically a bomb exploding underneath you. And she also spent the time to very vividly recall it through some personal recollections, which were shared with me. And it's just a a, a really fantastic moment. And I I really loved writing about it. So obviously this moment, this incredible accomplishment for anyone is lent that extra gravitas because she is the first. What does that mean for Sally when she comes back to Earth? 
Well, unfortunately for Sally, I don't think she quite anticipated what was going to be asked of her when she did come back. Um, one of the things that that she really talks about is that protection I I discussed earlier. She was in training, and so that had a level of a, like kind of like a shield from her and most of the media and the world. When she came back, that shield was completely gone. And so obviously NASA really wanted to celebrate this accomplishment. And so when all of these requests poured in, they were very eager to accommodate them and and were trying to book Sally for as many things as possible. And so she was just completely overwhelmed with attention and requests. And even more scrutiny was placed upon her for little actions that she did. You know, there's something that I call Rosegate in the book, when she returned and was doing just a tiny presentation to the public at NASA's Johnson Space Center, you know, she was handed this bouquet of white roses and she just wanted her hands free. So she returned it to somebody nearby, but it was written up in the press as some kind of political statement. And she got so many letters and notes of opinions about why she did that. Some cheered her on, some were very angry about it. And ultimately it was just, she wanted her hands free, <laughs> you know? So that was just the the microscope that, of which she was under. And it really did end up taking a toll. You know, at one point she sought out a therapy, which she hadn't really done before just to kind of make sense of the feelings and emotions she was going through. You know, she's she was normally a pretty happy person, but was really not feeling great during the time. So it just goes to show the burden she had to carry of being the first American woman to fly. And she also dealt with it in some really funny ways, too. You know, sometimes she would just disappear. <laughs> and NASA just wouldn't know where to find her. But that was just Sally's way of handling things. And um, it was just, a yeah, it's a great example of her, her personality, I think. But then over time, she really did come to realize just how important her flight became. And, and that is reflected in many of the choices that she's, she made in her career ever since. Can we go into a few of those quickly? Yeah, I think one of the big things, you know, she really loved doing Sesame Street and she was really uh, inspired by when little girls would talk to her or young children telling them to her how inspired they were by her flight. And so that became kind of a central focus of her life post-NASA. She started a nonprofit called Sally Ride Science that was really geared towards getting young women into STEM STEM fields and STEM education. And, you know, she also became an ardent environmentalist, you know, based on her time and space, looking out at the very thin atmosphere around Earth. And that also became a very big, important part of her time uh, post-NASA was advocating, you know, for making sure we keep, we take good care of the planet that we're living on. So Sally is the first. She carries this tremendous burden being being the first. But we've got five who are hot on her heels and, and obviously in, in their various ways itching to fly. Can we talk a little more about, you know, how their missions sort of come about? There's a bit of jockeying and rearranging and various things that I'm sure you can put more eloquently than me. But um, also I'm thinking the extra scrutiny that was on on the people in the group who were mothers as well. Absolutely. So one thing that I don't think most people think about, or at least I didn't think about, was just how precarious, I guess, the the lineup was. One of the things in the book that you'll find is I had this kind of concept of how the selection process went for Sally. You know, I just figured it was this extremely rigorous process, um, but ultimately it really came down to one man's decision who thought she was the right one for the job. 
he obviously, you know, did it in coordination with others, but it really was up to him. And same same goes with the lineup for the rest of them. You know, it could have easily been somebody else instead of Sally, who was the first one. And also the lineup after, you know, second through uh, sixth, was constantly changing. And there were moments where someone else was supposed to be the first to fly before somebody else. But because the shuttle lineup was constantly changing, issues would arise during launches or payloads would have issues and would need to be swapped out. You know, I say in the book, there was a a common adage that was, you know, don't fall in love with your payload because they were just constantly changing and swapping out satellites that they were deploying at the time. And that led to changes in the schedule, changes in the lineup, much to the dismay of some of the people whose flights had been had to be delayed many months and, you know, changed the lineup. So that, that was definitely uh, an eye-opening thing to learn for me. And additionally, once each of them flew, you know, I think Sally did a great service to everyone because, you know, she took the brunt of all of that attention. And while they did receive outsized outsized attention when they flew, as each one did go up into space, the level of scrutiny abated. Now, as you mentioned, when the first mother flew, Anna Fisher, you know, there was definitely a lot of opinions, many of which came from women as to whether or not she was doing the right thing, as it were. And, you know, Anna was really, she had a great response to that. You know, she was just resolved to doing her job and that she knew that she was going to do that from day one, regardless of what was going on in her personal life. But, you know, it was definitely something that was criticized at the time. And there's even a great, I mean, while she was in space, she was asked kind of an absurd question of how she would say a mother's a mother's role, you know, was compatible with an astronaut's duty. And, you know, she handled it very eloquently while also at the same time trying to acknowledge that was a somewhat stupid question. So, yeah, they all kind of had to deal with these really unenlightened opinions at the time, um, but they did that so that, you know, now that we're here in the 21st century, women don't get asked such silly questions. Yes. And what roles, what accomplishments? You've already alluded to how the space shuttle was perhaps being, the program was being portrayed by NASA as a bit of a truck to get people into um, into space at this point. And I mean, there was the government officials, you know, went in this time. Not to skip as I had too much, but this does all change in January 1986 after a, a, a horrible um, tragedy. Can you Can you take us into this moment? As you mentioned, the goal of the space shuttle program was to really make it seem as if space, getting to space was this reliable and routine exercise. But many of the astronauts at the time, you know, there was, there was after four missions of the space shuttle, it was declared operational, right? Which meant, oh, everything is good to go. The, The shuttle is flying just fine. It's totally reliable and safe. But none of the astronauts believed that at all. They had this really good understanding that it was definitely a risky vehicle. There are still problems with it. And you should definitely not take any flight for granted. You know, shouldn't lose vigilance just because there are so many different ways things could go wrong. And, you know, leading up to Challenger, there was some sentiment that NASA was playing a little fast and loose with the shuttle program. You know, they were inviting politicians to fly on board. They were inviting more and more uh, payload specialists, you know, 
people who would attend to a payload but weren't necessarily NASA astronauts. They were employees of a company. There was also an effort to send the first journalist into space on the space shuttle program. And then infamously, during Challenger, they were flying the first teacher for the teacher in space program. And so I think a lot of the sentiment was that, you know, this was not necessarily the best idea. But at the time, you know, there was kind of this attitude that NASA couldn't do anything wrong. And as we said, the shuttle was, you know, it was the way to get to space. Everything was fine with it. They all had a very tragic awakening when the Challenger did explode in January of 1986. So there's this tragedy that many people will be aware of, have seen perhaps, it's in living memory, and seven crew members lose their lives, uh, one of whom is one of the six, um, Judy Resnick. I I wonder if we can hear a little more from you on her accomplishments. Sure. So I actually really loved writing about Judy. You know, she had this complicated childhood growing up, but I think as I mentioned before, you know, she had this really kind of crass attitude. You know, she wasn't afraid to curse. And if anyone gave her crap, you know, she would give crap right back to them. And I just really loved learning that about her. And the people who knew her and spoke about her really talked about her with such high esteem. You know, many people described her as their best friend. And, you know, she really just had this very big impact on everyone around her in the astronaut corps. You know, she also had an interesting role to play because she was the second American woman in space. And so what do you think was the question that everyone asked her? Was she upset that she wasn't the first American woman in space? And she handled it very brilliantly. And also she, her flight really was one of the most interesting to write about because um, in her first time going to space, you know, she experienced a very scary abort on the launch pad. And that was one of those things that people remember who were in the the shuttle at the time, remember very vividly because it was such an intense moment. And so writing about that was, I really felt as if I was there at the time. And then her flight is also just fantastic because as we talked about, she was very cognizant of the fact that the eyes were still focused upon her. So there's moments on board where she had a little in, a snafu with her hair and she made everyone swear not to say anything about it because she knew that it would get a ton of attention. But unfortunately, her hair was front and center because she had she was the first to fly who had really long hair. And so it it made quite an impression in pictures and in video. And so there were quite a few headlines about her hair at the time. And the fact is she despised that. (laughs) And I, I loved that she despised that. And, you know, she was just a really great, a great woman to write about. And, you know, it it's tragic what happened to her, but hopefully people will relate to her her life and her experience. And for the five that remained after, can you say how this impacted them? Absolutely. Well, obviously it had major repercussions for the entire space shuttle program. They were all completely devastated and many of them were just kind of figuring out, you know, how they could be helpful during this time. One really amazing thing about the entire Challenger story is Sally's involvement. She was part of the commission that investigated and helped to solve what went wrong. And don't want to give too much away, but Sally was very instrumental in in leading everyone to figure out, you know, the specific part on the solid rocket boosters that was to blame for the Challenger tragedy. 
And then as for the other women, you know, they were involved in various ways. You know, a lot of the time was spent going through the mission checklists and the procedures and just trying to streamline and simplify everything. So it was a lot of paperwork and and tedious tasks, but it had to be done. And many of the women contributed to that. There's also a great moment where Ray is talking about how she had to retrieve one of the flight suits of one of the individuals who was on the Challenger disaster. And, you know, she just kind of breaks down and has this emotional moment while she's doing that. And then Kathy also talks about how she was leading kind of a helpful ear to one of the women whose husband passed on Challenger about creating, you know, like an educational outreach program, which eventually became the Challenger Center. So, you know, they all were involved in various ways. Um, Some of them, you know, the Challenger disaster was kind of a a closing of a chapter. You know, some of them did leave afterward. Um, Others stayed on and continued to fly. And many of them went on to have really incredible careers. And hopefully, you know, the the idea is that Challenger served as this big wake-up call and ultimately led NASA to become a safer place. You know, obviously many years later, it had another failure, but for a time it did really kind of make people reevaluate how they were doing procedures at the time and putting safety front and center after that. So these women all have have tremendous careers, accomplishments are, you know, they're incredible. We'll perhaps leave their stories there for people to discover in your book. I really encourage people to go do so. Is there any final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with after writing about these six women? Absolutely. So, you know, one thing I try to do is, you know, I'm a space reporter, so I'm very much involved in the current way of the space industry right now. And I just think this book is really poignant and relevant for today because, you know, NASA is really looking to take the next step by sending people back to the moon through its Artemis program. And one of the stated goals of that program is to send the first woman and the first person of color to walk on the surface of the moon. And they've already made good on some of those goals. The next mission that they'll be launching is Artemis II that's going to send a crew of four around the moon and into deep space. And they named Victor Glover and Christina Cook to that mission, making them the first person of color and the first woman who will go to deep space. And that's going to be such a, a monumental moment. And I think as we were discussing earlier, you know, thanks to the astronauts that came before, you know, hopefully they'll have a much smoother time and we'll be answering fewer stupid questions. <laughs> that was Lauren Grush. The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women in Space, is out now, published by Scribner. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.